Hello and welcome into episode 24 of the Orlando Drummer Podcast. We're officially at one full day's worth of talking That's about right. drums. That 24-hour yeah. binge if you want it. Yeah, you know? Jack Bauer would be proud. <laughs> How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Just surviving this. Uh, it's rainy and gross in Florida. Oh my summer, God. Summer, it's like there's two modes. It's just like... like swampy hot wherever you just want to die it's horrible like you break a sweat walking from like your front door to the car you're yeah. already sweating by this or it's just rainy which torrential downpour yeah. yeah the temperature goes down that's nice but sure just, yeah i guess yeah. you're just like freezing in the ac yeah and you're just there's like a four-month window in this state where you're like why do we live here it's a big world yeah. why did we pick this spot you know the funnier thing is people who like <laughs> vacation here are like disney in the people summer. Some people they, come here in the summer. They come here June, July, August, and they're just like, I can't wait Mistake. to like be in the, sh- the sunshine state. Yeah. And then, and then they, they get here. <laughs> Too much sunshine. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> it's just raining and gross, and they're like, this is the best vacation we've ever had. Uh, in ponchos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it. but then, you know, December, January, like right around the middle of winter yeah. around here is just awesome. But oh, yeah. Yeah, we're in the bad season now. It's hot. Yeah. It's it, real hot. It's the season that makes you want to leave. Yeah. And then you, you get to October, November, and you're like, ah, no. I can, yeah, I can now it's good. Here. Yeah. And then February rolls around, and you're like, ah, oh, I want to leave again. Yeah. Well, I posted a few videos from this practice session that was in August, I think, was when I recorded the video. So it's like insanely hot. It's like it was now yeah. super hot. It's August of last year. And I just posted them. And there's a very small percentage of people who get like, like offended by a guy playing playing drums without a shirt on right yeah. which to me is just like i can't even i didn't really didn't think about it i'm like surprised anybody cares so there's like four people that seem to care yeah and a lot of people <laughs> wrote back and they were like y'all have never been to florida if you're thrown off by like someone like without a shirt like Whoa. it is so hot like yeah no clothing is the ideal amount of clothing in the summer you yeah. know oh absolutely well you can only you know take off so many layers of yeah, clothing yeah. until you're naked i'm not posting naked out here but you at know. the same time like what wh- where's the the congruency and thought where it's like there's famous tiktokers that are shirtless and doing that thing like, yeah also you, the whole fitness industry yeah <laughs> like, they're all on. shirtless dudes <laughs> y'all really thrown off by this or ever seen eric and proda the guy's been playing naked for 40 years yeah you know? <laughs> <laughs> i'm just kidding eric oh man yeah. no not you haven't played naked for a long time man. yeah <laughs> who cares play wear whatever you want when yeah, you play man who cares right yeah i don't know anyway Drums. Drums. We talk about drums. Let's do here. drums. We talk about drums. First and foremost, though, we talk about uh, ways to practice drums, and we have that on the OrlandoDrummer.com website. Yes, right? we do. So we've got loop packs on the OrlandoDrummer.com website where yeah. you can practice the drums to loops, and they're pretty fun. And every week on the podcast, we pick a loop of the week. This week, we've picked from Pop Volume 1. Okay. It's going to be Runner. Runner. Volume. Okay. Yep. I, yeah, I know that one. Runner is, that's old. Probably first 20... 25 loops it's in that batch it's mm-hmm. really really old pop v1 you know we used to release loops as like individual tracks but then we realized it was better to group them together it's easier to sell them it saves people money it's just a way smarter way to do it so pop v1 was like an old batch of individual loops that got grouped together so runner's like a cool um like a faster paced electronic track really yeah. good for like like pop grooves and stuff though yeah uh, yeah check it out here is runner
Yeah, man, it's, it's a really fun one. I like some of those old tracks. We we had this theme of like, uh, actually, okay, I'm gonna tell a funny story about Ooh. the the first batch of twenty something loops. Mm-hmm. We had a we had a theme. We didn't know what to name these, right? And so we released like twenty tracks, and we said we're gonna name them after e-cigarette like vape juices because i don't know if you guys has ever and anybody that's ever smoked before oh, and you man. use vaping to quit uh, i'm not recommending anybody that go out and start vaping necessarily nope. but it's a great tool for quitting smoking if you ever smoke cigarettes which me and joe hodgen the author of all loose we used to a very long time ago and when we were just in like the the vape world some of the names of these juices that you would buy the flavors <laughs> were so ridiculous they were like so stupid and we thought man i wonder how long we can name the tracks after vape juices until someone says something like somebody will be somebody who vapes would know like hey are you just naming these after vape juices and so we had boss reserve space fog um dirty harry like go if you go way back in the library there's like there's like 20 loops that are named after like really famous like well-known brands of vape juices and what's funny is a guy finally messaged me, and he was like, bro, are you naming these after vape juices? And I was like, yes, like, you win. I'm like, we're sending you all of the loops that we made. It was like 20 or 30 tracks at the time. <laughs> that guy turned out to be Jeeves, who is Luke Holland's drum tech. Oh, I thought it was Ask Jeeves. And Well, he, yeah, that's kind of <laughs> sort of the joke, I guess. Uh, but it's super, super cool guy. His name's Jesus Everest is his name. Um, awesome, awesome drummer. Definitely check him out on IG. I'll throw his Instagram up on the screen. He's, he's a good buddy. I've hung out with him many, many times since. Um, and he came through on a tour with Luke one time, but he's he's also a drummer and has toured with other bands before. But it's just so funny that we ended up meeting that way. And he's like actually in the industry, super cool guy. Sweet. But yeah, Jeeves nailed it with um, with uh, guessing the vape juices, man. So Runner was probably just after that. But anyway, funny random story about how we decided <laughs> to name those back is, in the day. Is he still his drum tech at this point? I think for certain gigs he might take it. I want to say that was like his full-time job, but he did tech for him for some of the bigger tours that Luke had done. Mm. Um, but so, but yeah, he's actually a drummer too and plays and records in bands and all of that. So yeah, his Instagram's yeah. on the screen. Definitely check him out. Good drummer, man. Really good metal drummer. I think most drum techs they ha- also have play. to be. They have to be. Because it'd be weird for like a pianist to be a drum tech. Like it wouldn't translate well yeah it would almost be like like you being a piano tech but like you don't play piano like what you kind of have to play yeah you have right? to understand yeah everything that goes into it in order to be the technician for yeah. it like yeah I, yeah but yeah most people are drummers that are drum tech for sure so yeah cool Hell yeah man all right well that'll do it um we like starting it off because then it gives something for you guys to i don't know stop listening and then you go practice to that loop and then come back here yeah sure. Uh, you can you i guess if you want or you can um take the high road and listen to the podcast and then go practice <laughs> uh we'll start out with a pretty common segment we do on the podcast accent or ghost accent or ghost so yeah so this is a piece if you're unfamiliar with it where we get adam's view on many aspects of the drumming industry and at the end we'll get an approval which is an accent or a disapproval which is a ghost so first, what do you think about replacing your throne with a cajon? With a cajon? Cajon throne. Uh, I think I'm going to give that an off-the-bat ghost. Why would you do that? Mm. I mean, okay, to play it? Is that the idea? Because you do sit on a cajon to play it. Well, yeah. Yeah? So. I mean, I, okay, I guess if you had like a fully latined out, latined out drum set... Right, if the whole thing was geared to performing that kind of band, that would be really convenient to be sitting on the cajon the whole time. But they're short, 
Right, at one point I had like six cajones in the old studio mm -hmm. as I was filming a bunch of videos for Minel. I sent them all back, I didn't keep any of them, but um, they're all short, they're really short, like 18 or 20 inches tall. So I feel like you'd have to adjust your entire kit to do it, but I guess you could like boost. <laughs> what if you put it out on like an adjustable base and then you could just raise and lower it to the Man, height see you now want. you're buying like a cajon booster seat or something. Cajon getting, booster. Getting ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I would say highly specialized, right? If you're playing that kind of gig and you can lower everything else down, that might be a cool, almost like a busking sort of thing. Like you have a guy out like street right. performing. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Like the bucket drummers will typically sit on a bucket. So yeah, I'd say project dependent, but mm. uh, I'm definitely not sitting on a cajon. They're also like hard um, and flat and really uncomfortable on your ass. Yeah. It's not, <laughs> you yeah. know, I play a, my favorite throne I ever had was a rock and sock. That was a sick throne. Yeah. But I eventually burned out the. It's got like a gas piston in it that stopped ah. working after after ten years or something. Like it it stopped working. Uh, and now I have a um, cut rooster thrones made the throne that I have oh, now. Oh yeah. Guy yeah. in I think he's in Salt Lake City, Utah. But he does custom like leather embroidery. Is that the word for it? I don't know. He can put logos in leather basically. <laughs> but they're sick. Really really cool rooster think, thrones. Check those out. I think the process is called embossing. Embossing. That sounds more more right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Oh, one of the most like worthwhile purchases for a drummer is a throne. For sure. Above uh, above so many things. Yeah. It's a big one. It's a really big one. Yeah. Do you have a favorite throne? I mean, you've tried a bunch of them? Orange County Drums and Percussion made one. They made a fat one, didn't they? Yeah, I, I got that one that. and I love it. It's yeah. still so great. Just like gushy and real bouncy. Just enough support and comfortable enough. Yeah. Like you could swap it for a desk chair and it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. it's that comfortable. I uh, will I will say, what did I try? The um I had the rock and sock bicycle seat, and that was actually really nice. It's like Oh yeah. Right. It's like it's like a very specific kind of shape to it. And I really liked that. I did have the backrest though, and that seemed dumb. That you, I never, you would never mm. truly lean on it unless, like, in between songs or breaks on a gig. Maybe that would be nice. But while playing, what's annoying with backrest is like if you have your set in like a confined space, which happens at yeah. certain gigs, and you want to get in there, and then the back is just like pushing that throne up against the set, not allowing you to push it back like sure. against the wall or something, or just like walking in from behind it. And it makes the throne itself big. It's like yeah. way, really big, yeah. yeah. And heavy, and yeah. it's another thing to carry, another thing to set up. But it, you're, I mean, you're right. It's a good point that it's it's a worthwhile upgrade. It's kind of like in-ears where people might, you might go a really long time with cheap in-ears and just kind of forget that like if you spent a little bit more money, you get like this whole different world of sound kind of the same with thrones like if you're yeah. on a 60 dollars throne and you've been doing that for years like there's a whole new level of comfort out there but yeah it's, yeah. it's a good, good recommendation it's for a sure huge return on investment yeah like, you wouldn't think that a throne would improve your playing but i think it does yeah like it helps with the ergonomics of your set it helps with back pain lower yeah. back pain you're gonna need pain. your spine for quite a while yeah. i'm pretty sure you're gonna need to hang on to that one yeah so. and if you're sitting on what essentially is a piece of leather wrapped over cardboard for <laughs> that's some, exactly what the cheap for ones some are. beginner <laughs> yeah. thrones you know, you'll notice a difference. Yeah, and it'll 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 be oh. I had so an old, a really really crappy throw. I don't know what it was. Something like sixty bucks, and I left it out in the rain. This was years ago, and when I was like, ah, I'm just throwing this away. It was it was not right. worth anything. And I remember it was literally like in pulling the leather off. I'm like, oh, it's cardboard. It's yeah. just like a bunch of compact yep. like cardboard, like particle board under there. Really, really, they they cut some corners for those cheap ones. So yeah. buy a good throne. Yeah, yeah.
There we go. Okay, so are we accenting or are we ghosting the Cajon Throne swap? I'm going to ghost that for almost everybody. Yeah, I'm going to ghost it. Uh, That's weird. Sorry, Latin drummers. Yeah, I'm not a Latin drummer. I can't, yeah. Oh, well. You're getting a bossa nova out of me, dude. Start a fight <laughs> in the comments. I'd love to see it. I'll be there. All right. Next up, uh, Drums by Gideon uh, recommended this okay. for this segment. Uh, he wants to know whether or not you would accent or ghost drum quantizing. Drum quantizing. Mm-hmm. Man, I I struggle with that one. We're, we are going to get sucked down the tech wormhole again. I know we are. That's okay. It's, uh, yeah, right, let's go down there for a minute. So you can program drums to be perfect. If you want them to be not human and absolutely perfect, you don't really need a drummer to do that. Computers can, can do the whole thing. You can just program yeah. everything that you want um, that you want that drum track to be. So quantizing, for those that don't know, is essentially like, you. let's say you're playing a basic rock beat at 120 BPM, and you do a couple of fills, it's just a normal, like a pop or a rock song. And then you have this grid inside of Logic, your recording software, and that grid knows uh, different subdivisions, right? So it knows where the eighth notes are supposed to be, and you can quantize your audio, meaning you tell the computer, or the program rather, to to adjust all of those notes, I'll just say all of the eighth notes, to put them exactly where the eighth notes are supposed to be. So the natural spacing of, let's say, like your hi-hat eighth notes, it's going to get pushed and pulled by like milliseconds in either direction. Every single note will get adjusted to the grid. So it makes your playing closer to perfect than you played it. And one of the like one of the things that it does, it sort of dehumanizes the feeling. Mm-hmm. If you've ever played something with a a certain amount of feel or pocket or texture, it has like this this human quality to it. Quantizing is like making it unhuman and putting it a little bit more robotic and closer to to perfect because you will never play it perfect even if you tried. So my thought would be if I was ever going to really quantize something, it would be to like like to cover up a, a genuine error. Mm-hmm. Like for example, if I went and I, I paid me and my band, we paid a bunch of money to go to this studio and we had this elaborate drum setup, getting this very specific, crazy sound with all these microphones in this room. Everything's positioned perfectly. The drums are tuned perfectly. And we record our drums. And then a couple weeks later, we're mixing and we go, man, we didn't catch it the day of, but this fill was a little off. Like it's just a little bit off, man. I like the thought of being able to quantize it and make the adjustment and sort of fix that. Like that, to me, that's not like compromising any artistic integrity because it's sort of unrealistic that you would go rent the studio again and bring the drums back and set all of this up. And so it's a tool where you could fix something. But you can go to the other end of the spectrum and say that you're, you have not practiced this song very well. Your feel was off. You're not very well rehearsed. Or perhaps you're just not that good at playing this thing yet. And you go to record something. And you didn't do a very good job for whatever variety of reasons. You were unprepared, you didn't practice, or you're just a young drummer and you're not good at doing this yet. Mm -hmm. And then you hit this magic button that like fixes everything. Like to me, it's like, it's not cheating in the sense that you're competing with everybody else. It's like you're cheating yourself, right? It's like you skipped the part of this process where you had to get good at learning how to do this, and it's really difficult. And then there's the technological argument that you're like dehumanizing what it is to be a musician by pressing a button and removing the musicality from it. By definition, you're, you're removing the like the human touch. Um, so it's tricky. What are you gonna say? I wonder like what like a session drummer would say in this case, um, because I'm sure that there are sessions where 
the audio engineer just wants you in and out, right? Record this thing, get out. Um, we're going to quantize all your stuff anyway. We just need you to like play. The Sometimes that happens. It makes it faster. Like we don't need you to come back. We're going to use the computer to fix all the human errors. Yeah. I wonder if a session drummer would be able to kind of just like give insight on that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there is, I've been in situations before where there is, uh, this happens to singers too, where producers or recording and mixing engineers will lie to the artist and say they got a good take, knowing full well that it wasn't that good of a yeah. take, but it's going to be faster for yeah. me to fix this once you leave. Yeah, fix it in post. Exactly. Fix it in post, right? Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that, that's, there's definitely like an ethical problem with that. But the alternative would be you're here eight hours recording the same part because you couldn't get it right. And, you know, no mixing engineer wants to sit through that either. I've heard this happening. Okay, this is a full rumor. I'm not, I can't confirm if oh. this ever happened at oh. all. At all. But I heard uh, when I was in audio school, this is 10, 12 years ago, that J-Lo recorded an album in a day because... She was not actually that good of a singer, and they knew that the whole album was going to be a cleanup job. So they said, just sing the part the best you can and go home because we got weeks of work to do. No matter what you sing, we're going to have to like chop this to death, auto tune it and melodyne it and fix everything. So this was the rumor. I don't know. I've never met J Lo. I wasn't in the studio. Who knows? But I can imagine that that, that at a certain level of pop that that does happen where it's just like dude just sing close <sighs> and we'll fix it you know and as drummers like that's like shocking to think that there might be like i don't know like drummers in the world who just somehow got in a gig with a big band by the time they get this like record label funded mega album deal that they're just like come on in and play whatever we're just gonna fix it Ugh. like yeah that sucks doesn't it that sucks that's to think that uh, happens yeah. is like that's really lame um, yeah, personally, I, I I would only want my drums to be quantized if it was like, we're genuinely just fixing some sort of error and it's just like a time-saving yeah, thing. Not the whole thing. Not the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, not the whole track. I'll just play it again or I need to practice more. That, yeah. That's sort of like the integral part of it is like, I don't want you to press a button and make it sound like it's not me anymore. Um, you know, but it's genre dependent. But when you cross the line where it's like, well, we need perfect on the grid like robotic drums well like okay so you don't need a drummer is what you're saying yeah. like you need a program you need a computer yeah and you want to program the drums just do it that way yeah. it's, you know open up garage band and do it that way yeah <laughs> so for the most part it, it gets a ghost you know i can't i just ah. can't imagine um i've never re i've never done it i've had joe back in the day fix audio parts like for example mm -hmm. if i nailed a fill in a drum lesson but then when i listen back later i actually not that I didn't nail it, like like my stick hit the microphone and not the tom. So there's like a click where there should have been a tom sound. But I already moved all the cameras and changed the audio setup. So like to record that again is really difficult. I would have him like replace that tom sound, mm. right? So it's like, it's more of like a tactical thing to save you time than it is a, an attempt to like mislead people or trick people, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. So for me personally, I'm not quantizing anything. I just don't care. I don't care enough to do it. You know, there we go. Yeah. Well, if there's any statement that, uh, you know, solidifies your playing as an instructor, educator, and performer, then there you go. I don't quantize my shit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not interested. Yeah, practice more. That'd be my my personal philosophy. But it's you know? always it's always practice, practice, pretty practice. much, pretty that's, much. It's just the words that we should preach every time. You want to yeah. get better at something, you just put the work in. Pretty to get much better at it. It's, uh, yeah, it's hard to say when that yeah. doesn't apply. <laughs> yeah, 
Well, for anybody who like picks up anything, uh, just in a, va- in a vague sense, you're not going to be a master in the first day. So, sure. But gladly, there's tools out there that can make you seem like a master on your first day. Yeah. OrlandoDrummer.com is probably probably one of those tools. <laughs> <laughs> on the first day. <laughs> day one, basically. Day yeah. one. Just out here creating pros. You know? There we go. <laughs> All right. Cool. That'll do it for Act Center Ghost. Thank you, Adam, for yeah. that. Lovely little talk. Move on to a newer segment here for us. Swap, study, shed. Oh, yeah. Because we love alliteration. Uh, It is fun. So for this piece of the podcast, I'll give Adam three drummers that he has to choose which one he would swap gigs with, take a lesson from, or hang out and shed with. So our first round, heavy hitters, Neil Peart, Mike Mangini, and Terry Bozio. We're going all old school. Yeah. Neil Peart, Terry Bozio, and Mike Mangini. I think I would probably do... The lesson with Mike Mangini, because he's got, isn't he have like the wild single strokes? Yes. Right? Yeah. One of his weird, I feel like there's a a very famous video of him. So I take a lesson with him. Also, not similar in any way to my playing style at all. No. I want to hang out with Terry Bazio because I just want to see this kit. (laughs) <laughs> right i just want to yeah, like the, go to his house and be yeah. like where is this like living room drum set you yeah, have set up the the 10 hour setup kit or whatever yeah yeah but you think if you got to go to his house he would have a lot of that stuff like permanently set up all over the place of course he does right maybe i feel like he he doesn't have anything set up in his house i feel like he's he has just a like a whole nope, dedicated I, spot. yeah I, yeah i have it's it's over here it's four blocks down at this warehouse like it's not <laughs> in his home good luck convincing like a girlfriend or wife that like listen like i'm gonna need like oh, like man. two thousand square feet for this drum set yeah yeah. Oh, cool. What are you building? A garage? Yeah. No, it's a room for a bunch of wooden circles. Oh man, that's it's so big, so unnecessarily big too. Let's be honest. There's just no reason. Poor Terry. Yeah. He's just fulfilling his dreams. <laughs> sure, man. More power to him. And I think I would, I would probably swap gigs with, uh, with Neil Peart because yeah, ultimate ultimate gig. Yeah. What a what a cool gig that would be. Oh, and I'd be man. lying if I said any no, I know any Rush songs off the top of my head. Like I don't know the parts to them, but every time I've seen them perform, they're really fun. Like clearly, like yeah. very busy, very drummer oriented, like, or mm-hmm. musician oriented playing. Oh, of course, for sure. Yeah. So it would be a lot to learn. So and I mean, of course, they were they were arena level, right? Always they were. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. All the time. Huge. I mean, it's like their first single. We didn't even have Neil in the original uh, lineup. Um, the original three members of a different drummer. Okay. Pardon me for forgetting. Uh, but um, and then that drummer, I guess, maybe had some you know disagreements with the band, and then they brought on Neil. Gotcha. And immediately started just like getting a record label and touring. Okay. Like right off the bat. Yeah. Which is crazy. And they were touring as as musicians, not like pop fashion icons or anything like that. It was just they were big in their music. At a time when we were starting to give artists like an opportunity to showcase their talents, sure, and sure, sure. So it was, yeah, it was real cool. But absolutely, swap yeah. the gig with Neil. That'd be super, super fun. And then uh, what do we say? Yeah, we're going to Terry's house to hang out <laughs> <laughs> and see all these mega kits that I'm sure he has. And uh, yeah, study with Mike Mangini. Yeah, that's a cool one. It'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, cool. All right, well, that'll do it for round one. Okay, short one. Uh, let's pick some more recent drummers. Okay. So, for the second round, I picked some Young Guns. 
I say young guns, I guess more recent music acts. Uh, okay. Travis Barker. Okay. Of Blink-182. Ray Luzier of Corn, And Jay Weinberg of Slipknot. Oh, man. This is a tricky one for sure. Oh, yeah. That's really tricky. So I feel like I would have to swap with Travis Barker. I feel like I'd have to. Assuming the Blink-182 gigs, not like that's the only thing he's ever done. Mm -hmm. But assuming it's that gig, how could you not sit in on that gig? I also would know a handful of those songs because they were just massive when I was like 13, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, 03, 04, 05, like, yeah, which was like my high school era. Yeah, I think you'd have to swap with them for sure. He would be fun to hang out with as well. But yeah, I would definitely do that. Um, So I'm playing the Blink-182 gig. Study. Who were the other two? Ray Luzier and Jay Weinberg. Hmm. They would both have a lot to teach you. Like Ray Luzier is very he's an interesting drummer, like heavy style. He's got a yeah. lot of style. Um but I also feel like like Weinberg might be more technical and have a little more to show you in that yeah. way. Well, for him to pick up, you know, what was Joey Jordison's gig with Slipknot, and then it's like Jay learn all these songs. I mean, yeah. he, he does better, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, when you look at, like, Jay Weinberg versus Joey Jordison videos, you're just like, oh, no, Jay's cleaner. Yeah. He figured it out. I think I might I might hang out with Jay Weinberg. Okay. Um, only because I want to see what those <laughs> that group of people are like in real life. Yeah. Because it's so theatrical and dark and, like, you know, Slipknot as a whole, that's just the whole like on stage vibe. But I would right. love to see what they're like off stage, you know. Probably very cool. Probably normal, super people. normal, I would imagine. Well, yeah. Jay's dad, Max, was the drummer for Bruce Springsteen for years. So he comes, he's blood related to a professional drummer. A high level one, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so that would be really cool just to hang out with him. And then I think I would take a lesson with Ray from Corn because he's got a like a, I want to say like a rock swag to him, yeah. you know, like he's an older guy that's clearly like a rock player with like a lot of rock background, but he's got a certain touch and feel to his playing. And also Korn has some awesome drum parts. If you oh, go yeah. back through their library of music, oh, of like course. really creative, cool drum parts that you can see influenced like, um, I want to say like the Linkin Park sector of like rap, rock, hip hop drums with the more metally guitar yeah. kind of stuff. Not that that's the only two bands in that world, but like um, there's a weird connection there, sure. So yeah, I think I would study with Ray. I would hang out with Jay Weinberg. And then our first one was... Travis Barker. Travis Barker. I'm playing the Blink-182 gig. If that's the gig on the table, I want that one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he's got anything going on right now. Yeah. I know he uh, produces and oversees a lot of different musical projects Mm -hmm. that he's not necessarily the drummer for. Mm -hmm. Um, Eric and Proto's band, Fever. Yeah, um, he has a lot to do with them. I don't know if it's just production or what he does, but he's involved in a lot of stuff, even if he's not necessarily playing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, man, he's a good example of like almost like a quest love of like if you want to know what the ceiling for a drummer is, you look at people like that. Yeah, like here's what this instrument can lead you into. Yeah, where they're effectively celebrities in you know multiple different different fields. Um, I don't know, advertisements for car companies, like right like can, clothing and fashion, and yeah. like it branches out a lot. You can mention these names to people who aren't drummers and they'll recognize who they are. Our moms know who they are, yeah, which is exactly. a different level. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when mom finds out, <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. that that's famous. Exactly. 
Cool. Awesome. Well, I have a lot of fun with that segment. Yeah. Okay, that'll move us on into Sleeper Spotlight. All right. Yeah. I feel like we haven't done this one in a week or two. A few episodes? Maybe well, we snuck one I think, in last I think time. we do it remember. every episode, but the last episode was Q&A. So oh, that's right. We did Q&A last time. Yeah. Gotcha, but, gotcha. Um, yeah, I love this one. Uh, of course, we've been doing this since the beginning of this podcast, but I love finding other drummers that have... You know their own following, and if they barely even have a following, their own style and yeah. you know uh, variety. Of these drummers is very important, and we also like to push members of the community up and give them recognition. So yeah, uh, first off, we have Ofri Nehemia from Tel Aviv, Israel. Okay, uh, it's at one Hemia. How do you on pronounce Instagram. that name? Ofri Nehemia. That's a cool name. I, I all think right. I might be butchering <laughs> it. It's all right if I am, I guess. All right, let's go. Video one from Ofri. Here we go. Ofri. High-level jazz comping, that's for sure. Some of those hand-foot patterns were were brutal. Uh, I heard like inverted double strokes as triplets, which is very tricky to get up to speed like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of subdivision work for sure. And for those that, if that kind of playing sounds deeply like foreign to some people, because it's you know pretty abstract jazz. A lot of what's happening there is like rudiments, except they're not played between your hands. They're played between like one hand and one foot. So just imagine a paradiddle, but it's right kick, right, right kick, right kick, kick, for example. It, you know, it could be something like that. So there's a lot of that sort of thing going on in here, which is how you get those. It's like rudiments, but the voices are very different. Like one half of the rudiment is on a ride cymbal or ghost noted on a snare, and the other one is on the bass drum. So that's how you get those like complicated, really blurry sort of phrases. And the only thing, man, I, it sounds good in this example for sure, but his bass drum sound is so traditionally jazzy, right? That dry, kind of hollow sort of thing. Um, not a lot of attack, not a lot of slap. I and mean, my ears have never gotten fully accustomed to that bass drum sound. It always feels like something's wrong, but it's, it's not. It's yeah. actually how they all used to sound until they started sounding how they did, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. But um, a good player, man. I mean, definitely some really advanced concepts. One of those videos you could slow down and pull out like 10 ideas in like a 10-second clip. You know, just so many fast, fast ideas, but high-level jazz. So I'm curious in this next one if this is his like, he's got to be a pretty a jazz purist. Nobody would have a kit that sounds like this and play that high level yeah. and not be a full-time jazz player, right? Yeah, I, th- I think like jazz marching, I think is where his background is. Okay, but, interesting. Yeah, Explains but, the hand speed. Yeah, this next one is, is crazy. Okay. This one. Let's pull up clip number two from Ofri. Here we go.
I love that he just hangs his left hand down just yeah, to like just to prove just to, to you. prove. Yeah, I got that vibe too. Just like look at it; it's not moving. <laughs> that was funny. Oh man, that was awesome, man. Very yeah. quick foot, obviously. I mean, you could tell from the first video yeah. as well. Very fast, fast foot for sure. Yeah, um, and a Gretsch, which is the right jazz kit to get if you want a jazzy sounding kit. I mean, Gretsch is definitely oh yeah might, might be. I don't know. I think Mark Juliana. That, that's that's the vibe that I go. Like I can hear that that type of kit. Uh, I, I enjoy it. A lot of jazz kits I don't necessarily enjoy. Or I don't understand exactly what the sound is supposed to be. I just don't have the ears for it uh, from not listening to a tremendous amount of jazz. But Gretsch, like the Gretsch Renowns, like certain ones I can hear. Like ah, I, I hear the quality jazziness to that kit. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's very cool. Also, what a good example of. Have you ever just done the thought experiment? Like, what if I lost an arm? Like, would I still play drums? Yeah. Like, would you do it, you know? I think I would quit. <laughs> I think it's just, like, a lost cause at that point. Just, well, never mind. but, like, listen, I mean, there are people who have been playing for five years that can't be this musically expressive, right? Like, he, you can you can say a lot with only three limbs. It's crazy. Uh-huh. I mean, most people go, they ignored their left foot entirely, for the whole time they play drums. So it's like you already play with three limbs all the time. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it was a good example of like how much can be said with uh, without using a limb. It's really crazy if you want to go that far down the wormhole and practice yeah. those sort of things. Yeah, and then just imagine what it would sound like if he added in his left hand. Like what yeah. other possibilities are there? Yeah. Endless. Endless. And, I, and I forget that like half the people listening to this are just listening. So we should clarify. All of that was played with just his right hand. His left hand was hanging down by his hip the whole time. I forget people can't see, see, yeah, the, yeah. You see the video a lot of times. So yeah, that was just played with uh, entirely the right hand. So. If you were impressed, hopefully you're you're more impressed knowing that now. But yeah. really good player, man. I'd love to see some more of his videos. That was um that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, check him out. He's Shout got about fifty two hundred followers on Instagram. So uh, cool. let's get him up to ten K. Offrey, you're amazing. Yeah. If man. I'm mispronouncing your name, yell at me. I don't yeah. care. <laughs> Send us an angry email, dude. Um, sweet. All right, cool. Well, thank you, Offrey. Yeah. And we got another sleeper here. We got John Holbrook drums. Okay. So John is from Yorkshire. He's got 8,000 followers. He was nominated by his friend Cannon. Uh, in his email that Cannon sent me, he said he's the kindest, most passionate dude ever. I truly believe he'll be at the forefront of the UK drum scene with a bit of a push on his socials. So I want to help out however I can. Cool. Big fan of what you and Adam do. So thank you in advance for the consideration. Awesome. What was the name of the guy that sent that? Cannon. Cannon. Well, thank you, Cannon. That's awesome, brother. You do a Doing Mr. Mr. Holbrook here a solid. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, let's check him out. This is John Holbrook? Yep. Cool. First video from John. I like this guy's playing a lot. Very, very interesting. A whole lot of things you could say about that. Yeah. 
Uh, first of all, Benny Benny Greb Sigsnir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought I recognized that. <laughs> um, he first of all, the first groove when he came in had a strong Keith Carlock vibe, like that fat, super thick, yeah. super intentional groove, like deep, deep pocket. So that I like that. That's how the video opened because it sort of says like, "Here's my bass, and let that sink in for a minute, and then here's all this weird shit I can do on top." Right? Yeah. Um, I also loved that he used a variety of different techniques, and I don't mean like hand techniques, but like he, of all the skill sets you can have, he went through some of them that weren't so like obviously impressive, but they are actually really impressive, Mm -hmm. like high level subdivision manipulation. It's not fast, that's not why it's impressive. It's impressive because it's, it you lose it like your ears can't keep up with what he's doing like a couple moments of like where's the one like i'm not sure like that is a very impressive skill set to be able to like take your ears and just twist them around for a second you're like ah like what happened like so very very cool um time manipulations there were a couple things in there where i lost the one like i'm not entirely sure like what he did but like he threw my ears for a second um and it wasn't necessarily rooted in in speed also unique patterns, a lot of kick snare uh, hitting at the same time. So like that sort of stuttering kind of thing. Spanky McCurdy does that a whole lot. Um, very interesting player for sure. There was a lot more I could say about that, but let's uh, let's do another clip, man, because that was that was what's the way like eclectic, right? It was just like a yeah. whole bunch of interesting things about that all at the same time. So this is a second clip from Mr. Holbrook. Here we go. Yeah. I love how he buries his sticks only sometimes. Like it's yeah. it's for the sound. It's not yeah. that that's how he plays. It's just like sometimes you like whop and you just leave the stick on the snare on purpose. That was very very cool. It's such a good example of intentional playing mm-hmm. where this is not I don't know how to how to best describe that, but like it's all on purpose. It's all confidence in your playing. Extreme confidence, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it sounds like he's making things up as he goes along, and he definitely is improvising a lot of this for sure. But there, there's, yeah, confidence is a good word to use. There's a certain level of confidence where it's like, but he knows what sound was supposed to be there. So it's random to you, but not necessarily to him. To him, this is like articulate thoughts that are like, being expressed through his hands, but there's a certain level of like precision in thinking uh, that is very obvious here, and that translates to, to the precision of playing. We're going to get into that concept in the closing message of this podcast a little bit, but yeah, 
yeah, there's a certain precision, a certain confidence, a certain articulation to his playing that is just very, very advanced. And those qualities are earned. It's not, you. nobody's born with that mm-hmm. at all. It's very, very earned with a lot of time behind the kit. So this was um, very uniquely impressive for sure. So I, I definitely love his playing. I love seeing things that don't remind me of anyone else. Like I don't really have a lot, aside from the Keith Carlock groove thing, mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of drummers that come to mind that I would say, oh, he plays very similar to this guy. Which is kind of a cool spot to be. You got to earn that too. Everybody sounds like somebody until you don't anymore. So um, yeah, man, high level player, very interesting stuff. I like that a lot. Definitely, um, I put him in my top five of, of drummers we've covered on this segment for sure. Hell yeah, yeah. Way to go, John. Yeah, man, that was awesome. Killing it. All right. Well, if you guys have any suggestions for sleepers that you're seeing on the internet anywhere, YouTube, Instagram, wherever you're finding them, send them to me, chris.orlandodrummer.com, and we'll be sure to feature these people. If you have a buddy that you would like to feature on here, give him a nomination. We'll put him on the segment. Yeah. It'd be great. And if you get your girlfriend to nominate you, you're blocked. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I wouldn't block you. But you're not getting on the segment. (laughs) Yeah. You better be good enough for your girlfriend to care. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck convincing your girlfriend to care. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's so mean. That is mean. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that's oh, hilarious. God. All right, what we got next? All right, so that'll do it for Sleeper Spotlight. It'll move us on to the Q&A portion of the podcast. Cool. Q&A portion where we answer questions. Uh, this is what Q&A means. Hey, some people might not know. Yeah, they I might mean, not. That's, that's why I talk about it, but if I... I think we need a more elaborate setup for Q&A. Just really, really unpack. Have you had a thought before that might have to do with drums? It could be answered on this podcast. Send over those thoughts and we'll gladly add content to that thought. I don't know. Exactly. All right. These questions come from anywhere. They can come from Instagram, uh, YouTube, or the forums of OrlandoDrummer.com. They can also come straight to me at chris at orlandodrummer.com, like I mentioned earlier. So if you have questions, just send them straight to me, and we'll try to put them on the podcast. This first question comes from at parlato01. Okay. They ask, is there a downside to always using a metronome? Mm, very little, but yeah. I would say in 90-plus percent of situations, you're probably better off with, with a metronome, sure. If it becomes a like a crutch in that you're deeply uncomfortable keeping time without it. That's probably an issue, because I imagine a situation like you're, I don't know, you're going to see a buddy's band at like a like a bar gig, and they're like, hey man, you wanna sit in and jam for a song? We're just like jamming and having fun. Yeah. And you're like, well, I can, but like I need my click first. Like so, <laughs> something about that is like what very not cool. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm gonna fall apart without this click. Oh right? man, let's come jam, man. Okay, what's the tempo? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, I guess in some context you would want to be on time and everything like that. Maybe if you're well, writing, but... it's like unnecessarily professional. Like I would think, what's a, I'm trying to think of like an analogy for it. But like if you're a mechanic and you work on cars and you've got like your really expensive tools in your shop, but your buddy wants an oil change to go to go help, you wanna go help change his oil, and you're like, well, I really need to bring over a lot, like, come on, dude, come on, get in get there with a the the wrench, ground. get on the ground with a wrench and make it happen, yeah. bro. Like, something, it's kinda like that, where you should be able to just jam, um, right. and, and hold tempo. You should be able to hold a, a tempo yeah. within a five BPM range for 15 or 20 minutes or something, right? So. And again, though, practicing with a metronome makes you better at that. So I don't know, man. There's not a lot of circumstances where it would really me- mess you up too bad. 
to play with it all the time. But I do, I really do enjoy what I describe as like freeform playing. Mm-hmm. So like there is no tempo. Like or or rather, the tempo is constantly shifting and moving. There's a there's a word for this in piano world. Like pianists do this sometimes, mm-hmm. where the te- in classical music too, where the tempo naturally has like a flow up and down, and the music is not right. fixed to a certain tempo. And drummers don't really think that way, but there is some value in that for sure. So I, I mean, I would say ninety plus percent of the time, it's it's a better idea than not to be playing with a metronome. Mm-hmm. But there are definitely times when you don't need one for sure. Um, yeah, it's it's tricky. It's tricky. Here's, here's a downside. Okay. Um, coming from like the orchestra world, mm-hmm. um, like you said, there may be like natural changes and shifts in tempo a lot yeah. of the time. That's controlled by your conductor in an, orca- in an orchestral is. setting. It totally is, yeah. So if you're practicing any percussion parts or whatever instrument you play to a click, and it's you know an expected 85 BPM, I guess, on like a recording, right? But then you get to the performance and it's like 92 because the conductor is like, no, I want this portion to be a little bit faster, and you're yeah. like, well, I'm not used to it that being that fast. Like, I don't, I don't, because now your brain's a little bit messed up. Sure, right? Yeah. Because now they're like, no, faster. This transition needs to go through faster so that we can get to this next movement of this piece. That makes sense. You want to be a little bit malleable in your ability to like adjust your tempo as needed yeah. in certain environments. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's also, I don't know. There is. It's, I'm of like two minds about it, but I've played in bands where everything is on backing tracks to a click. And then I played in bands where like we never used one at all. And there is some kind of a cool, fun, raw artist expression thing with no click. But you, I also feel like everybody has to be at a certain level of professionalism to pull that off. Right. Because I've also remember back in high school when like the tempo just jumps back and forth the entire set, that sort of thing. So that's like an earned privilege, I think. Well, that's sort of that's an ironic way to say that. Um, it is. It's definitely like an earned thing to be able to do, right? Like everybody has to have put in many years with a metronome before confidently getting rid of it and knowing that we're not going to be right. swimming all over the place. Like yeah. you got to earn that one. So yeah, maybe it's a scale thing. Like as you get older and more mature in your musicianship, it becomes less important of a thing because you can trust your time, right? Yeah, maybe. But then, like in a professional context, everybody's playing to a click for the performance aspect of, of course, it just yeah. so that everybody's at least on time and not able to mess up. Yeah. Whereas like down the totem pole, down at like local gig, local band yeah. playing a gig, it's like, well, they don't have to play to a click. Like they just wrote the songs. There's only five of them. Just play them. Yeah. And yeah. nobody's going to know if it's on time or not. Yeah. yeah. Now, me going to shows as a kid was like, that was wrong. He's a bar off. <laughs> like not knowing their music, but just like, oh, I can tell that they overplayed that portion mm-hmm. and they should actually be playing another part to that. It's just interesting. Yeah. But, yeah. I think so. most most of the time you're you're better off with a clay, but there are some circumstances. Yeah, it's fun to talk that out though. Definitely. Hmm. So no, I mean, yes, downsides, but very little, if yeah. any. Yeah. It's a good so. way to say it. All right, cool. Next off is a question from Canon Drums. I don't believe it's related to the same, same canon, canon from earlier, okay. but Canon cool Drums. Name says asks do you believe in quality of content or quantity when it comes to initial social notoriety hmm oh man it's so dependent on the person because you could do both right there is a way to like flood the market with an overwhelming amount of decent content and that has a, a value but my experience was more on the quality side like you'd be better off putting out 
one video a month, but it's like an unbelievably well thought out, well produced video. I, I would think for somebody just getting in, I would go quality. I, I think it would be my current recommendation to just pick the project that you want to do. Drum cover, drum lesson, whatever, like anything in those categories, whatever the type of content that you want to do, pick that and then spend like a month or six weeks on the project itself. Make it as good as it can possibly be. Because I think, but there is a catch to this. The catch would be that, you know, a lot of times early on content creators have trouble pulling the trigger. Like yeah. a lot of times, like there's a lot of talking about content that they might make. And like in reality, you just need to put the thing out and then start over and make another one and then make another one and another one and another one. And then we'll see you in five years. And then yeah. we can talk about what's working and what's not. So it depends on, on, on the person. If, if you don't have a problem like executing projects, then I think it's okay for you to go slow and focus on the, the quality of the project itself. But if you're struggling to pull the trigger, like you just need to start pulling all of the triggers, which means yep. don't get hung up on the quality. Don't be a perfectionist about your first video. Trust me, it's not your masterpiece. You're gonna laugh at it in two years no matter what you do anyway. Yeah. So just get it done, post it, and on to the next one, and then get that, get the momentum building, right? Like you gotta get on the hamster wheel and get this thing turning before we start assessing everything. So it's personality dependent. If you have a propensity to be a perfectionist, I would say just start putting stuff out sooner than later. Get the quantity up. And if you don't really have that problem and you're good at just like, being realistic and you know executing your goals that are right in front of you without getting hung up on the details, then I think it's okay to go slow and really, really make sure those projects are done well. So person dependent, but um, that's a good question. It's an interesting one. Quality. Yeah, but I lean towards quality. That's always been been my style is slow down and make, make the one really yeah. cool project instead of just, you know, th this podcast is probably the most quantity oriented goal yeah. that we've yeah. ever had that I've ever had in the drum industry yeah. right because it is you know it's an hour of talking so you can cut a lot of content out of this um but if you watch any of my fully produced YouTube drum lessons like mm -hmm. some of those take six weeks to make yeah which is absurd because you can make a drum lesson in 10 minutes if you want to or you can take six weeks if you want to so I, I personally I've always leaned towards the the quality side and uh, I got a third question here from okay. Daniel goms dot one okay just Daniel Gomez how do you develop precision and accuracy on subdivisions and chops? Precision and accuracy with subdivision and chops. So we'll do accuracy first. That's actually a lot easier. So accuracy is a weird one, man. Um, I forget who I asked years ago. I was at a clinic and I asked whoever this person, what might've been Chris Coleman. I can't remember. I was asking about like, uh, the problem I had with accuracy was this is like physical accuracy. It might not be exactly what you're asking, but it's, it's kind of an interesting point. We've never talked about this before. I would have double strokes, like doot doot with the right hand. And the first stroke would land right where I wanted it, but the second one off of the rebound would like move to the right or to the left. So it wasn't like straight up and down. It was like one came down and the other came at an angle. It was like that, that sort of thing. And which is kind of an accuracy problem. How do I hit twice in the same spot? And the piece of advice that I got was like, you need to watch the tip of the drumstick and decide that it's going to hit in the same spot twice. It was uh. literally, the advice was like, pay attention and watch what you're doing. And it was like, oh, I realized I wasn't like choosing to make it go right where I wanted to. So that fixed a lot of accuracy problems for me. Like look at the tip of the drumstick and decide where it's gonna land. Exactly. And it actually does improve your accuracy a lot. So that's just like a, like, 
focus is, is sort of the message there. So for accuracy, yeah, focus on, on where things are physically touching the stick and the drum head. Um, but when it comes to subdivision and like, like you might've meant more of like the, like a sonic accuracy, like really nailing down on the subdivision. One thing I think a lot of people skip that I tried to address heavily in my subdivision masterclasses, there's five of them, it's five hours of subdivision work, is not just sticking in one particular subdivision, but focusing on the relationships between two different subdivisions. So take two easy ones, for example, eighth notes and 16th notes. Like they have a relationship to each other and, and part of your comfort level in 16th notes, it's not just about you playing 16th notes all day against a click drum, though that's a, that's a helpful thing to do. It's also about how those 16th notes have a relationship to eighth notes and do you understand their relationship? Now, mathematically, you can understand the relationship. That, that's the easy part, right? It's just like, you got eighth notes, we'll double them up, and then now you're in 16th notes. So it's easy to understand how they, they depend on each other in that way but the sound of them. If I give you eighth notes, can you simultaneously hear the 16th notes inside of them, right? So when these subdivisions begin touching one another and you begin to hear the relationships that they have, they each have like this new value that's relative to the other subdivision. So it's like they depend on each other in a weird way. So how's a better way to say this? If you don't know what 16th note triplets sound like, and you also don't know what 32nd notes sound like. They can get mixed up. Right. You hear them and it's just a blurry, fast notes. That's what they sound like. But as you begin to know them individually, here's what 32nd notes sound like. Here's what 16th note triplets sound like. They, they There's like a contrast there. And one, knowing the sound of one helps you know the sound of the other. Like they have this weird relationship dependency on them in a strange way. I don't know that I'm saying this the best way that I know how to, but the, anyway, the, the point of all of this is that you should focus on switching from one subdivision to another because the contrast is something that helps tighten them up. You can hear when you go from sextuplets to octuplets and you did something wrong. And it's because there's like this comparison thing where if you're just in sextuplet world all day, I don't know, it's almost like like you get blinded to like what makes these so unique and so special. It's the comparison that makes them uh, makes them sort of stand out. So in the subdivision master classes, each one focuses on, or rather 102, 103, 104, and 105. Each one of those focuses on two subdivisions that have a relationship. And what I do is take you uh, from one to the other within a single measure of music. So like it, there's, let's just say 10 exercises in one of the master classes that involve 16th note triplets and 32nd notes alternating back and forth in the same measure. And so you have to switch gears like a transmission. You're switching gears back and forth, back and mm -hmm. forth. And in that process, you really learn what actually makes them so different. And that ends up making you more articulate in each one of those subdivisions respectively. So long, kind of a complicated answer, but subdivisions are complicated. There's a lot to talk about with subdivisions and they're, <clears throat> it's sort of like the, the core fundamental substrate of drumming itself. Like, good luck playing without them. It's like saying you wanna write a book without words. Like, ah, eh, you, you're gonna need some words, dude. Like, <laughs> I mean, words would be a little more like rudiments in this, this example. Um, but you have to have subdivisions. You're playing in them whether you like it or not. So the better your understanding of them, um, and the more you practice them, again, in contrast to one another, the better of a relationship you build to each respective subdivision, and then ultimately they'll get cleaner and more accurate, which is, I think is what you're asking. So, mm -hmm. sorry, long-winded, complicated answer, but no, you know, such are subdivisions. Yeah.
All right. Well, then, that'll do it for Q&A. Cool. Love talking. Uh, and as a reminder, if you'd like to submit questions to us, you can do so via Instagram, comments down below on YouTube, the members area of OrlandoDrummer.com, or shoot me an email at Chris at OrlandoDrummer.com. Appreciate your questions, viewers. And Adam, do you have any closing thoughts for the podcast? Yeah. Well, it's a great last question because it kind of segues us right into what I'm talking Ooh. about here. Uh, so later today, I'm recording an episode on All In With Adam, which is my other podcast. It's philosophy meets psychology, self-improvement, somewhere in that category. And I'm, I'm focusing heavily on one part of that podcast on precision of language, which is an episode I've been, well, rather, it's a topic that I've been interested in and thinking about for quite a while now. And... I'm not going to go all the way down that wormhole in this podcast. We're closing out here. Don't worry. I'm not going to keep you too long. But if you want to know more about this, that episode will come out uh, probably tomorrow, actually. So it's already out if you're watching this. Yeah. Anyway, on the topic of precision of language, I, I there's definitely there's definitely a part of the drum industry that's really guilty of being vague in your language. And I'll tell you why I have a problem with that. You know, we universally think in words. Some people can think in pictures or think in emotions, but for the most part, you know, when you're describing someone who truly conceptualizes ideas in like pictures, you're almost on like like an auti like an autism kind of spectrum. Like that's really not how many people think at all. Most people think in words. So vague language, like imprecise words, in my mind, you know, they're synonymous with imprecise thinking, right? It means your thinking is not precise. If your words aren't precise and your words are muddy, uh, not defined, not articulated, not well-constructed, then your thoughts are probably very similar. And so this is the concept that I'm exploring in this other podcast I'm doing later today. But there is one example from Drum World that I want to give you. And this is something a lot of teachers have encountered. It is when you hear people say... Um, I'll give you a weird example. Somebody will say, hey, so when uh, um, when I'm playing, you know, eighth notes and then I have like a couple of bass drums and then I go up to the rack tom and I do a roll down the toms. Is that like 6-8? Where it's like, mm, the lack of precision, right, in it, what those words actually mean is a real problem. And, and these are just like, these are the... The, the ramblings of someone who's like an unconscious drummer. They haven't actually articulated what these things necessarily mean. And so there's a certain level of unintentional like dishonesty in what they're saying. It's not that they're choosing to lie, but it's like these thoughts are not, not totally articulated yet. Everyone's guilty of doing this when they're really young, but saying things like roll down the toms. Do you mean single stroke roll down the toms? Like, do you like what is the specific pattern orchestration and subdivision and dynamic level that we're actually talking about, right? So my advice to you, or rather my message for you in, in this closing thought here is to see if you can explore where is your thinking about drums imprecise? Is there an area of drumming where you're not necessarily thinking as deeply and as precisely as you could about a certain thing? You're leaving something... Uh, a little bit foggy, a little bit, little bit unexplored, because it's you haven't explored it yet, right? I think the more precise you are with your language, with your thoughts, with how you articulate certain things that you talk about in the drum world, man, that just helps helps clarify so so much in your playing. And when I think about the progression of my playing in the last ten or twenty years now, a lot of it is 
simply becoming more precise about how I think about and how I articulate and how I play drums. It's becoming increasingly more precise over time. And the further back you go, the more inarticulate I was. When I described what I was playing, I wouldn't specify exactly what it was. You know, let me say it this way. You know why when you see a giant thing of uh, a giant sheet of drum notation, like a really complicated piece of music that's charted out, do you know why that's so scary to to most people? It's because it's extremely precise. It's like unbelievably precise. It's, this is what you play and how fast and what time. It's what all count. there. It's it's dialed. This yep. is exactly what it is. Where you would prefer to look at it in the most vague sense, as let's just say a beginner musician, as music. It's drums. It's just music. It's just drums. But that's the contrast I'm talking about. It's not that you are wrong. Well, it is music and it is drums and it is fun and beautiful and artistic. But also, the more precise you're able to be here, the closer you're going to be to a higher level of musicianship. I'll give you a better example. Um, you and I look at cars, and we see cars, mm-hmm. right? We're not mechanics. We know we're car people. We like cars. We can talk about them. But we're not mechanics, right? When, you, when your car breaks down, the level of precision required to fix it, you have to go see the mechanic, right? You have yeah. you have to go consult the guy who is the most precise, yeah. right? It is the this bolt on the carburetor was loose and it connects to this specific gasket and like the level of precision they have to have, we pay for that precision. So, as a musician, my like this this philosophy that I'm sort of working through here is that your goal is ultimately to be as precise as possible. Um as far as your relationship to rhythm itself, right? Your goal is to be increasingly more precise, more articulate, to remove things out of the fog, out of the unconsciousness, and to be as as precise as possible um, with your language, with your playing, with your understanding and your study of rhythm itself. So it's complicated. Um, If you want to dive deeper on that one, trust me, I'm going way deeper. I got a thousand more metaphors that'll hopefully clear this up a little bit. Um, But yeah, we'll tackle that one in All In with Adam later today. So yeah, man, hopefully you guys enjoyed this podcast. That is my, I feel like we got, we got weirdly complicated at a couple points yeah, in this podcast. Right. But it's all right. <laughs> what we're here to talk about. I'm enjoying it. I'm in a thinking mood today. So, you know, Good. we'll just rev the brain up a little. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Stay thinking, y'all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Thank you for tuning in, guys. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Chris. You're welcome. All right. Catch you guys all next good. week. Peace. Bye.